21CL Radio. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vassar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast series. As always, I want to thank you for your time and energy and for tuning in to any episode that you can. If you are a new listener, uh, I thank you. And I really hope you find value and come back to listen to future episodes. And just to give you a little bit of insight into the podcast itself, uh, it really is a passion project of mine that started about a year and a half ago. Uh, Today's episode will be, I think, my 52nd episode. Um, It's all about um, really interviewing people and having discussions with people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence through the work that they do. I love digging into people's stories and and learning more about them and their major life lessons learned throughout their journey that have led them down the path that they are on. Uh, In today's episode, I feel incredibly lucky because I had the chance to speak with Scott Kretschmar. For those of you who do do not know who Scott is, he is influential in the field of physical education and health. His work is world-renowned. Scott is one of the leading sport philosophers in the U.S., and he has taught the philosophy of sport for decades and has played a key role in making it a legitimate field of scholarship and study. As well, Scott has written a couple of books Uh, The first book here, I have it uh, written down here, is The Practical Philosophy of Sport and Physical Activity. And the second book is The Practical Philosophy of of Sport. Uh, Scott has written loads of research papers that you can find online. Um, But a little more backstory into Scott. He began his work in postgraduate education in the late 1960s, actually 1966, uh, as a teaching assistant at the University of Southern California. For several years after that, he worked at different universities in the U.S. before ultimately settling into his current university, which is Penn State University. Uh, Scott is actually retired, but Penn State still gives him an office that he goes to every day to tackle new learning Uh, each and every day, really. Like Scott is truly a lifelong learner. Um, My conversation with Scott was really rewarding. It was one of my favorite conversations on my podcast. Uh, Scott is a gentleman. He is wise, uh, so incredibly wise. Uh, We dug into not only his philosophy when it comes to physical education and health, but also his life in general and kind of the major life lessons that he has learned that have really shaped who he is. Uh, Scott has a passion for working with physical educators to help them realize that the impact that they have is enormous when it comes to 
helping young people embrace physical activity for life under their own terms and conditions. And Scott has a particular stance and a philosophy when it comes to what's most important to get young people moving and getting them to really embrace being physically active for life. Um, we dig into that in the podcast. We talk about his stance on physical literacy, the debate around physical literacy, and um, how we can structure our programs to ensure that we are allowing young people to thrive, to actually create the conditions for them to thrive and to embrace being physically active. Um, Scott was so insightful, and I could have spoken to him for hours, really. Um, he's a genuinely kind person uh, who continues every day to live a life of purpose. And you're going to hear a little, little bit about that in the podcast today. But um, I could go on and on about Scott, but I want to get right into the episode now. So without further ado, my conversation with Scott Kretschmar. Good day, Scott. It's uh, great that you're here, and I really thank you for your time. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, everything that you, you do has really inspired me, along with many researchers around the world in physical education and health. So it truly is an honor to have you on my podcast. Um, can you just uh, say a few words about yourself and currently where you are? Well, thank you, Andy. Uh, let me return the, the favor. It's an honor to be on your program and uh, to having a, ch a chance to talk about some of my favorite ideas. Uh, I just retired a year ago, uh, so I am now Professor Emeritus uh, of Exercise and Sports Science in the Department of Kinesiology at Penn State. Uh, uh, I still have my health. I still think I can think. I'm not <laughs> sure sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and so even though I'm not being paid by Penn State anymore, uh, my wife tells me she has a hard time seeing the difference. Yeah. So when you when you say that, you know, obviously movement still means a lot to you. So can you describe what movement means to you now and how you you embrace movement in your everyday life? Yeah, I joke with my friends about the difficulty of, of being a retired kinesiologist because movement, particularly in the domain of sport, has been so central uh, to my story. And, uh, you know, we kinesiologists, I think, face some things that other scholars don't face because movement has been part of who we are and what we do. I've always sat in my office for 45 years, 50 years as a kinesiologist, hoping to get out of the office. Yeah. And now with my body glassing up, as they say, and becoming a, a little bit more challenging, uh, some of the things I enjoy doing I can't do anymore. But uh, when we're done and uh, later today I'm going to uh, get on my bike. Uh, yesterday I played golf. Uh, this summer, my daughter and I plan to uh, ride about 400 miles on a bike. Okay. So I'm trying to push back yeah. <laughs> and keep my play, keep my playgrounds alive as long as I can. And and again, I guess embracing all the work that you've done, it's all about finding the joy and love of movement. So that that continues. So it's not just your research, but you embody that philosophy to this very day. 
Well, it's, I, I wrote an article recently about uh, why an, an aging biker's life is still meaningful. And uh, it's, uh, it has to do with some common ideas about um, still pushing, still trying to do things that are challenging and interesting. And even though I can't produce the times and the distances and the speeds that I did as a younger man, um, the future challenge still looks as enticing as it ever did. It's kind of a paradox. <laughs> you would think, why don't you retire to an easy chair because your biking is so depressing now? Yeah. It's not depressing at all. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. And I just want to like frame my next question with with your work and the impact that you've had on me. And so my job currently, I'm a pedagogical coordinator. So I worked uh, at uh, coaching physical education teachers at my current school, as well as other single subject teachers, music and visual arts. And, and one of the things that I really wanted to instill upon the teachers here and open up dialogue about was that idea of relevant and meaningful uh, movement, physical activity. Uh, the PE team that I'm working with here, very innovative. They introduced the idea of skateboarding uh, at the school here uh, and had resounding success. And uh, they do a unit on individual pursuits, pursuits which is uh, three weeks of bicycling, three weeks of skateboarding. But this has resulted in, you imagine, we're, we're in a Muslim country here, right? So right. you imagine now that there are grade two Muslim girls, local Saudi girls, who have a skateboard with them, walking to school, leaving school with a skateboard. On weekends, they're at the skate park. And that, to me, is such a, uh, such a rewarding thing to know as a teacher that you have inspired kids to take action physically outside of school. So this returns directly to my next question, which is, uh, about can you describe the difference between joy and fun in PE and just kind of your research and what you've done related to, to those specific areas in regards to physical activity? Sure. Um, philosophers are supposed to be good at interrogating human experience. And so rather than getting test tubes and <laughs> uh, other kinds of physical instruments, um, I reflect on experience, and it always struck me that there are a number of fine gradations of quality of experience that we have as moving creatures. And my aim was to try to tap into some of those higher-end quality experiences. And, you know, words can be used anyway, any different mm -hmm. way. And, you know, joy and fun are just words that we're using, but what we're trying to describe is something that's very real and that we as humans probably share across the human community. So fun to me is more of a, a shallow distraction. Um, you know, when we're going through our days, uh, last thing we want to experience is boredom. Uh, maybe fear is up there too, but yeah. boredom and fear are two things that are our downer experiences. And I think much of physical education has been oriented at, at too close to the shallow end of things, if I want to put it that way. And I, I've often told my students that any physical educator can produce fun. <laughs> you can distract kids, you can throw a ball out there and invent a game, and for 30 minutes or 20 minutes, the kids can have fun. 
they're distracted from their worries and their daily life. What's really hard for physical educators is to get to those higher levels of subjective experience, which I've called joy and delight. And I guess the best way for me to describe that is that joy and delight are personal in ways that fun is not personal. You know, when you and I have fun uh, doing a Sudoku puzzle or whatever, perhaps we don't have much of our identity invested in that. But when we have joy or delight in Sudoku, solving Sudoku puzzles or biking or hitting a baseball or whatever, we're invested in it. There's more of us involved. It becomes part of our ongoing story of who I am. And that's hard to get to because a lot of people who move uh, don't like to sweat. (laughs) They don't like the to get in uniforms or get into things that allow them to move. And it, it, there are some um, disincentives to move. So it takes a very skillful physical educator to bring a person along. I almost see it like an apprentice relationship. You know, when you have a, a student early on, they don't know what's there. They don't know what's inside the kingdom doors. Yeah. And you're promising them there's some really special stuff in there. <laughs> Trust me. I'm going to take you by the hand. It may take a little while before you start seeing the things that I know are there. But trust me. And so uh, it involves some things that are no mystery to us kinesiologists about taking time to get into the kingdom. And... Um, I wish I knew some buttons. I wish I could press a button with some of my kids and put them into the golf kingdom or put them into the biking kingdom or the skateboarding kingdom, as you're talking about. Yeah. But usually it's harder than that. Usually it takes some time. Uh, but with persistence and skillful teaching, we can start opening the doors. And even after the kids leave us, once they've been inside that building, even if it's the, the foyer, <laughs> the yeah. front, Yeah and they get a glimpse, they'll keep going, and uh, even without us, and that's my big hope. That is such a, uh, a beautiful message, you know, that, that all physical educators really need to hear and to understand, and when you talk about that kingdom and opening the doors to that kingdom, um, I think as physical educators, as educators in general, but in particular in our subject area, we have to create the conditions for young people to thrive. And that should be first and foremost. And a lot of our community is, is I don't want to say caught up in the wrong things, but there's teaching games for understanding uh, advocates and there's sport ed and, and there's, uh, you know, teaching uh, personal and social responsibility, all of these models, and then physical literacy enters the debate. And I always sure. feel that those are the wrong discussions, that the discussions you need to have are exactly what you describe. So how can teachers, what are the top things that you can recommend to physical education teachers to be able to con- uh, create the conditions for young people to thrive and to open up those doors to the kingdom? Wow. Yeah, I don't see um, these ideas about teaching toward joy uh, and delight as being necessarily opposed to some of these other approaches. So one of my messages uh, to those going into the teaching and coaching profession is you can get a two-for-one or a three-for-one or a four-for-one. You know, if, if you get to the joy, 
a lot of other good things happen too. <laughs> and so uh, the joy may spawn some study of the sport. You know, people who get into the kingdom, I get three biking magazines. And so yeah. I read all about this theory of biking and so forth. But it's, it came from my initial uh, love affair with biking. And so I think we get the cart before the horse sometimes by teaching for fitness or teaching for knowledge or teaching for social responsibility. If we taught for joy, a lot of these other things would come along as part of the package. And so we wouldn't have to get rid of the fitness thing. Here at Penn State, a lot of energy is going into the fitness movement, allied health, allied medical kinds of things, and the obesity epidemic, and all of that. And, you know, so I, I tell my students, you know, if you have somebody who can't wait to get on their bicycle or their skateboard, they're going to spend some calories. Yeah. <laughs> their heart rate's going to go up. You know, joy doesn't stop heart rates. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, those things will come along uh, with it. Uh, but if you teach to the heart rates and the kids don't like the activity, they don't like the sweating, they don't like the boring exercise, whatever it is you're putting them through, uh, then I think it's a short-term intervention and you might feel good about some data you can produce about my kids lost an average of 2.3 pounds or they spent X percentage of time in activity. To me, those are sidelight issues. The question is, how effective were you in opening those doors? How effective were you in leading the kids toward these more meaningful experiences and movement? And and when when we were if we were to look at your your career and and where you know basically over the the past few decades you know I sent a a question that I wanted to ask you which is like you know on Facebook we see these slideshows of of our friends' family vacations and. Or just our our friends going to these important events, and there's these great slideshows with music playing in the background, and these slides flipping through. I want to ask you that if you were to kind of sum up your own journey in in say four to five pictures, you you were to create your own slideshow that gave us a window into who you are and the love that you have developed for the work that you do, which has ultimately brought you to to you know where you are now. What would those pictures show us what would be happening in those pictures those transformative moments and and what song would you pick to be playing in the background that kind of represents your journey uh i think that uh my first picture i'm going to think about the song for a second okay <laughs> um because i the title of it is missing me uh is eluding me at the moment but my first picture would be of my father. Uh, usually, uh, all of us owe a lot to our parents in one way or another. And uh, that's certainly the case with me. My dad was a baseball coach. Uh, he was a baseball player. He was an academic. And uh, he was in the military during the Second World War. So I was a, a military baby. Um, and in the United States, as you know, uh, some people have written about my dad's generation as the great generation. And they wonder why that generation was so willing to sacrifice, so willing to pursue duty and value at all costs, even at the cost of losing their life. 
my dad was one of those people. He would sit at the dinner table and talk about uh, the importance of freedoms that we have in the United States and you know, why he went to war uh, and so forth. So from my dad, I think I got uh, duty, uh, honor, uh, the importance of keeping promises. One of the, the most important things we people, we humans do, that animals don't do, is keep promises. Yeah. I think the second slide would be my mother. She was the opposite of my dad, so I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, she was a musician. My dad was an athlete. She was a musician. She was a great pianist and an accomplished artist, a uh, watercolor artist. And so while my dad was taking me out to play catch with baseball, my mom was saying, sit down at the piano, Scott. You need to learn music. You need to play the piano. So to this day, I play the piano when okay. I go home. And uh, so I got that side of me that was uh, force-fed by my mother. Wonderful person. Yeah. And I think I gained the appreciation of some of the intangibles. Uh, sometimes when I hear music, I, I tear up. And I think that's gave me some insights into sport that nonverbal things are extremely poignant. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't have to have words to tell our stories. Um, music can tell stories. Sport can tell stories and so forth. So I think I got that from my mom. Um, my dad died young. Uh, it was very unfortunate. He was in his 40s, a very healthy person. He got a form of cancer that couldn't be uh, treated. And uh, I would be lying if I didn't say that impacted me tremendously. I was a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. I was 17 years old. And I wasn't, um, shall I say, well-equipped to handle that yeah. at that time. And so that pushed me to think about big questions in life. What's mm -hmm. life about? <laughs> yeah. And if you don't have the luxury of living a long life, what kind of a short life matters? Yeah. So you can see the sort of philosophic uh, stuff that was in there. I was going to go into theology uh, for a number of years, and then I decided, and I, this is a joke, that I love sport more than God. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not true. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I decided that... Uh, in my heart, I was a person who was drawn to sport and physical activity and that I could still talk about values and the meaning of life as a sport philosopher rather than a minister or person of the cloth. Um, my, my fifth picture is probably uh, one you could have taken last night. I had dinner with my wife. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation. And uh, that speaks to the importance of... Um, living each moment uh, yeah. well, and uh, the importance of companionship and love in life, and uh, having somebody you can love, and uh, just as importantly, having somebody who loves you. Yeah, those are, those are great, um, great, great messages, and I'm getting a little feedback here, um, but I, I think I, I really connect with what you're saying. Uh, I recently, about a month ago, I gave uh, my first TED Talk. And I kind of shared my own journey. And I come from a family that um, there was a lot of dysfunction in my family. There was uh, mental illness and addiction. Uh, yeah. I've, I've lost two brothers, one to addiction, one to depression. So wow. it, it was this constant fight within me. And But sport played a huge role of my life. It became my narrative. 
and uh-huh. it, it and it truly was my escape, and it, it provided me with, as I said in my TED talk, with a a suit of protective armor uh, that kind of protected me against my genetic predisposition to to depression and mental illness, and um, you know, I kind of shared the the value that physical activity and sport played in my life, and the the narrative that it helped me create an empowering narrative that ultimately protected me from depression. So I never suffered from depression or addiction. So I feel that that sport and physical activity truly was my saving grace. And, oh, that's yeah, and it's a it's a message that I I finally came to grips with. Um, after my brother died in 2014, he had committed suicide. He suffered from depression his whole life, and it forced forced me to confront what ga- what gave me the the strength and the tools to move forward. And it's a it's a message that I I feared sharing for being judged, but then I realized that I had to share that message in honor of my brothers, but in and sure. also uh, in honor of the the power that physical activity and sport plays. In creating a a very powerful narrative and and a and a bright future for people, so I think that's another reason why your work resonates with me so much. Yeah, you know, people are afraid to talk about meaning <laughs> because you can't weigh it, you can't measure it, and uh, you know, I work with physiologists here, and they're good friends, but sometimes physiologists will. Uh, tell me that if you can't measure it, it isn't real. Yeah. <laughs> and you and I know that that is absolutely false. <laughs> you know, even though you can't measure a meaning in a physical sense, it's um, some of the most powerful, immediate stuff that we deal with. Yeah. And so, physical educators who deal with body and body mass and muscle mass and so forth, I think, need to be more comfortable telling their stories and how movement impacts our soul, you know, not just our muscles. You know, that's the message of holism, isn't it? That, yeah. you know, when you move, all of us move. Our meaning selves, our loving selves, our fearing selves, all of that's there on the field. And uh, you can't just talk about it in mechanical terms. Yeah, I, I told you in the pre-show about two of my friends, Dr. Doug Gleddy from the University of Alberta and Dr. Tim Fletcher uh, from Brock University. And Tim started a website with, I think you know Mary Sullivan maybe? Um, yeah, so Tim started a website with her called Learning About Meaningful Physical Education, and he had Doug Gleddy write a guest blog post where Doug talked about you and your work, and and Doug pulled out one one quote from a paper that you, you wrote, which totally embodies everything that you've talked about so far. And what he said is, the quote that he picked was, when movement is experienced as joy, it adorns our lives makes our days go better, and gives us something to look forward to. When movement is joyful and meaningful, it may even inspire us to do things we never thought possible. And and he, he shared that in, in the blog post. Um, you know, he's trying to capture the essence of, of, of what you stand for and the work that you, you've done and your dedication to the profession. So I hope you, you really know and understand and feel the tremendous impact that you have had on on our field—it's so important—and I know that you've been told that. But I just wanted to 
to just tell you those thoughts and share those thoughts. Very humbling. And um, I'm I'm a lucky person in so many ways that uh, I've been in the right place and I've had the right kind of colleagues uh, who have helped that journey. And so, you know, when anybody has any success, my belief is the first thing they should do is thank the folks that, you know, put them in a position to do things. Here at Penn State, uh, I was department head twice, and after the second time, Carl Newell came uh, from University of Illinois, and Carl was my savior. If I'd had a different department head here, who knows what would have happened, but Carl believed in physical education, the profession. He protected physical education while he was here. He believed in philosophy, history, and the humanities as part of uh, one's education. And almost single-handedly, he held off other powers, so to speak, that would have narrowed our curriculum down and would have jettisoned physical education, and we would have been more physiology of sport kind of department. So everybody who succeeds has those kind of good fortune stories to tell, and uh, I've got a lot of them. And... um, it's it's been a pleasure, I tell you, to be in this profession and to be paid for it is uh, over the top. <laughs> yeah, that that's how I feel every day with the work that I do. And when I was doing my consulting, I took a year off of, of teaching and I consulted at different schools around the world, international schools. And I thought, how lucky am I to be able to do this and, and spread my joy of movement and uh, and sport and to be with teachers every day learning from them. Um, if I'm going to give you my kind of back to the future question, which is really going back in time in a time machine. And if, if you were transported back to your initial years of teaching, the very beginning, um, how would you teach differently knowing what you know now? Well, I had an epiphany about halfway through my career uh, in terms of my pedagogy, the way I taught my theory classes about philosophy and sport. And so I can't take credit for it. I don't know if you know the uh, person named Michelson is his last name, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-E-N. And he gave a workshop here at Penn State, and he came into the workshop and he said, what if I told you I had a teaching method that would guarantee attendance and uh, guarantee that your students had read the material before the tests and so forth. All of us are saying, there is no method that does that. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do that. We know human nature. Students will cram at the last minute. They skip classes that they think aren't important. So he taught us a, a methodology that the key points are this, uh, student active learning. You don't talk at students. You coach students. And that resonated with me because that's the way I always taught my activity classes. I've taught golf, baseball, a whole bunch of activity classes. I couldn't talk at them. I had to lead them toward better skill and so forth. So that, I said, yes, for 20 years I've been talking at students and giving them pearls of wisdom, I thought. And uh, the literature says uh, they memorized it for the test, and then they forgot it three days later, (laughs) or at least a lot of the things. So student active learning, uh, having them engaged in coming to ideas was one. A second one, which was just as important, was peer responsibility. Students should be responsible to each other 
not primarily to the professor. And for all these years, I've been giving out tests, and the worst day in all of teaching is the day you give back a test. Because yeah. <laughs> the students are after you. Yeah. Not because they dislike you, but they're trying to work you for points and, you know, to get yeah. their grade up and so forth. So when you do the peer responsibility model, the students are responsible for correcting each other, not primarily the professor correcting the students. Of course, I'm there to help, and I'm there as a, a counselor and a wise uh, coach, yeah. not a teacher. Uh, but uh, the way I give the test, you've probably heard of this, is a, a very simple example of the methodology that changed my teaching. I give the test in three parts. Uh, the first part is taken by the students alone. So they finish the test, they turn in their answer sheets, and then they get into their groups. All of my classes have groups of six people. I assign the groups, male, female, they have to be mixed gender and so forth. They take the same test in their groups and they talk with each other about, you know, what did you put for question number one? And what did you put for question two? And then they turn in that sheet. And this is the same class period now. We're talking in a 50-minute class period. Then I give the answer sheet for it, the, the correct answers. And the third wave is they're allowed to challenge any question. If they think that I keyed it wrong or that there's more than one right answer, they have a sheet in their packet that allows them to challenge verbally they write down their alternate answer and why that makes sense. And it revolutionizes the way testing occurs because a test day for me is a learning day. <laughs> it's not a fight the teacher day yeah. and then forget it. It's a learning day. And the, you should hear the room when they're taking the group test. It's lousy. There's a lot of laughter because somebody in the group says, no, go with this answer. You know, I promise you it's the right answer. And then the other five people are saying, you know, you sure better be right because, <laughs> you know, we're, there's going to be hell to pay if you uh, let us down. The road. It's a wonderful dynamic because the kids learn to work with each other and care about each other. So there are a whole bunch of other things that are part of that method. But uh, that was my epiphany. I wish I had started that way because I wasted some kids' time for about 20 years until I learned how to do that well. Yeah, and that kind of goes with, with my own experience with uh, my epiphany was when I began to really connect with research that supported that idea of success in teaching is dependent upon the co-construction of knowledge you know, the social yeah. construction of knowledge, you with your students as well, and then the students sure. with each other. So I really embrace that, um, that, that model, my, the last probably seven or eight years with resounding success in my teaching. Um, and it's something that I present in, in my workshops are, are quick and efficient ways that you can involve students in the social construction of knowledge and learning in physical education. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Dr. Dean Dudley from Macquarie University in, in uh, Australia uh, did a research paper into um, uniforms and the fact that uniforms are mandatory, but uh, and but the idea of forcing kids to put on a PE-specific uniform, like a school uniform to participate in PE, can lead to disengagement. If we yeah. allow them to wear comfortable clothing, then they're more comfortable because, you know, I think once they reach adolescence, there's body images, right? 
So it can lead to disengagement, but, um, what are your, what are your just general thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think sometimes we've been our own worst enemy because we say the best way we have this ideal model of how you should do physical education and ideal models historically haven't worked well. (laughs) You know, we, in the United States, we have, you know, these utopian communities and almost every one of them has blown up yeah. <laughs> because we don't live in utopia. We live in Saudi Arabia. We live in America. We live yeah. here and there. And culture matters tremendously. So my meaning-oriented physical education would pay homage to the local culture. You know, you mentioned the, the skateboarding yeah. girl. You know, yeah. she wasn't wearing shorts. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Letting her hair hang down. Yeah. And yet she can skateboard. Yeah. That doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. You know, as long as it's reasonably safe, (laughs) you know, and reasonably would, I would have a a wide latitude there. Yeah. Uh, I would honor the culture, the religion, the traditions, uh, to a certain extent, if it meant that that was, um, an important issue to get them moving. So I'm not a purist. I'm not a utopian. Yeah, so but, I, I guess that's a quick answer. I know that it's more complicated than that. Uh, but I think, you know, fiscal educators should be wary of anybody who says, I have an ideal model that will fit everybody. Um, I think we, we're smarter than that, and we need to be clever in our location. Yeah, and that's, that's my concern a little bit with the physical literacy movement. And although I believe in, in the power of, of, of developing physical, physical literacy in young people, it's a tremendous responsibility to, um, put on physical education teachers alone to develop a physically literate young person to prepare them for life. It's a tremendous responsibility and a tremendous pressure. So I sometimes wonder if getting too consumed with developing physical liter- literacy skills uh, might not necessarily be the, the right road to go down, a road to yeah. pursue, but not necessarily to invest everything you have into. What are your thoughts on the kind of the debate around physical literacy? Yeah, I, again, I see some utopianism in that. And yes, you might say it's, it's, it's a nice ideal. To, to have a, a totally physically literate person, but uh, it can run a, you know, it may not resonate with the kids you're teaching, and their parents aren't doing that. Yeah. <laughs> their parents weren't raised that way, and so, you know, I'm not a conservative that says you have to do it the same way the parents did, uh, but I am a person who feels that we have to look for victories as teachers that are specific to our population. Uh, let me give an example. Sure. There, um, you, you can hardly ever pick up a pedagogy book and find horseshoes in there as a recommended activity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, it doesn't get that high a heart rate, yeah. and it's idiosyncratic to some people out west. You know, they don't do it in the cities, and so forth. But I went to this little town out west a number of years ago, and 
the local culture is goofy over horseshoes. They've got lighted horseshoe pits <laughs> downtown. I said, you've got to be kidding me, lighted horseshoe pits, and they've got stands that go up on each side. Uh-huh. So these, you know, that would be an example of, if I were a physical educator there, I wouldn't have my total curriculum, obviously, around horseshoes. But I would acknowledge that as a movement activity that means a lot to many families in this town. And so I wouldn't discourage that and say, oh, horseshoes is something that we physical educators or we physically literate physical educators don't teach. Yeah. I would take advantage of it. It might be a hook to get a kid who doesn't move much to love movement. And so that would be a victory in my physical education class. And then maybe I could get them past horseshoes to some other things too. Yeah. But I got to get the kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Scaffold that experience. And um, I've, I've got one of one of my friends, uh, Dr. Aaron Beatley from the University of Kentucky, who's worked very closely with um, Dr. Bob Pangrazzi, um, kind of shares the, the research around um, how adults are most active in life. So after they leave university, gardening is one of those physical activities that uh, helps people remain active. So Aaron has talked about that idea of when possible, why not have gardening a part of the PE curriculum if your if your physical school space allows it? Because gardening can be very hard work. But again, going back to horseshoes and gardening and just setting kids up for success with relevant activities that are choices available to them when they leave the the walls of the school. So I I think it's such a, such a really cool thing to consider. And when I've talked about gardening and PE, people look at me like a deer in headlights. (laughs) Yeah, that's, you're dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's, I love the gardening stories. Uh, and that's right down the, the alleyway. And, um, one of my kids in class once, I was showing slides about gardening and uh, somebody who was using gardening and physical education. And one of the kids raised his hand and he said, well, you know, a lot of a lot of people like to compete. You know, this isn't like a game at all. You know, you go out there and you try to grow radishes. And I said, well, I said, well, you could put these two guys in your class who like to compete. Give them each a three-by-three three plot yeah. and give them the same number of seeds. <laughs> and then tell them that at the end of the year, whoever has the most tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. You could, you know, again, if you're a creative physical educator, I guess you could do a lot of things. But I love the any kind of reasonably safe and ethical kind of movement is fine with me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're going to move closer to the uh, to the end speed round, but I want to ask you one more question before the speed round, uh, which sure. has to do with, you know, you've written many, many uh, research papers, but I guess the, the question is, which, if you had to, and I don't know, maybe you can't choose just one, but if you had to pick a one research paper, which one would you be most proud of? Oh, gosh. Um, I think the one where I talk about um, our competition in the in higher education, and I do that four-game loss uh, bracket, and how in a dualistic world where mind is set against body, we have trouble as physical educators. So a lot of my work has been anti-dualistic, and... Yeah. Uh, 
that was one paper. It wasn't to my philosophy colleagues. It was to everybody. You yeah. know, I think it was, it might have been in Quest or um, Joford. I can't remember. Uh, but it was a, a simple graphic way of showing how we uh, get into trouble when we buy into the dualistic tournament in education. Mind is always going to beat us over the head. Yeah. And if we buy mind-body dualism, we're doomed. And we'll always be playing second fiddle, and other educators will not take us seriously. So um, I would say that would be the article that, that meant the most to me and summarize as one of the, the major themes in my work uh, is to try to get out of that tournament, tell people that's a wretched tournament, it's a false tournament. Yeah. It's uh, a fabrication of how people are put together. We're not minds plus bodies. We're people. Yeah. We're meaning-seeking people. <laughs> and that's how you get us. Take it or leave it. We're meaning-seeking people that, are, that have flesh and bones. Yeah, and uh, one of my, my friends was on my podcast last week in, in Romania, a PE teacher there. His name is uh, Andy Dutton. He teaches at the United Nations School of Hanoi. And one of the things that he shared, which was most meaningful to him, uh, was that idea that was presented by um, a man called Mike Kuzala, who wrote a book called The Kinesthetic Classroom. And it's that idea that meaning make, uh, meaning-making is, is state-dependent. So it, it really is based on, on who we are, our emotions, and that everything is so closely connected, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm going to move into the speed round, and I think I explained the speed round to you uh, in an email, but essentially just to let my listeners know. So this is, I'm going to ask you four questions, and um, your goal is to answer the questions as succinctly as you can without explaining anything more. You just give me the the answer that comes to your mind. And then to, to finish off the show, you're going to return back to one of those questions that resonated the most with you and leave uh, my listeners with, with one or two last pieces of advice related to that particular area. Sounds good. I guess, is this a contest? <laughs> <laughs> only, only, maybe, maybe in your own mind, it's a contest to, to come up okay. with, with quick I answers. I can do it. <laughs> yeah. So the, the first question is um, a book that you have read outside the world of education that really means something to you that you can extract meaning from and apply it back to the work that you do. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, people suffer. Uh, people are in radically different circumstances than I'm in. Uh, kids in my class don't see the world the way I see it. I need to keep being reminded of that, that suffering is real. People see the world differently. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, number two, you're going to complete this sentence. Um, my biggest fear is. wisdom of the human race is not going to be taken seriously enough soon enough. And I find wisdom in secular literature. I find wisdom in religious literature across religions, Muslim, Christian, yeah. Jewish, 
nobody has a corner on the truth. But if you look at the wisdom literature, answers are there. My fear is that people won't believe the answers and that the powers of darkness, uh, rather than the powers of love and reconciliation and hope, are going to win. Oh, yeah, great, great um, answer. Number three, um, I think you mentioned this already, but um, in, in different aspects. But the most important thing that your parents taught you—you you spoke about your your father and your and your mother—but maybe just sum up one more thing that you felt was really important that they they taught you that you've embraced. Um, I think they were both very religious people who viewed life as a gift. And when you have a gift, you have an obligation. And I think that was the biggest message they gave me. Use your life well. Yeah. Don't, don't fritter it away. Don't get sidetracked. Don't follow the wrong muse. Yeah. Use your life well. Great advice as well. And if you had to, this is not a question. I'm just actually curious now. Um, <laughs> If you had to identify what you believe were your have been your biggest strengths and your biggest gifts in life, what would a couple of those things be? Oh. One of them is weird. It makes me seem like a weak person. I'm a crier. <laughs> when I go to movies that you know have a, a sad ending, I'm bawling. I mean I got tears coming down my shirt and I don't know where that came from. Uh, from my earliest days, I think I saw Bambi, you know, the Walt yeah, Disney yeah. movie <laughs> where Bambi mother dies and her yeah. father's killed or something, yeah. and I'm bawling like crazy. And so somehow God gave me, I got a very tender heart, and uh, those things bother me a lot when I see somebody suffering or I see a story going wrong. And... Um, I think it's an asset. It, it's helped me when I'm doing ethics and when I'm talking about values uh, to have a soft heart, so to speak. But I don't take credit for it. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's one of those things that some people have, I guess. Yeah, I think that that idea, empathy, and a lot of research shows that that empathy, empathy is one of the things that's beginning to, um, I guess, it's it's on the decline in young people. And it is an asset to be empathetic. And um, for for me, my my movie was Charlotte's Web, <laughs> that that, uh, got, that got me as a kid, right? Um, great, great movie. Yeah, <laughs> great book. <laughs> so the the fourth uh, question that if if someone was to write a book specifically about you, so maybe not about your well, which would include your research and your life's work, but if somebody was to write a book about you at the end of your career. What would the title of that book be? Okay, again, that's a little bit of a weird title, I think. Uh, but the title would be this. He pushed the peanut forward. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that comes, I, I stole that from Peter Singer, the uh, great ethicist. And he talked about our obligations to not turn the world upside down, but Push the peanut forward. Yeah, my my friend Artie Camia. Do you know Artie Camia? Have you heard of no, Artie? I don't. Artie uh, runs the uh, National PE Institute in Asheville, North Carolina, every summer. Wow. And um, Artie, 
I was on my podcast last year and I asked him that question and and basically he said, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So I guess if you were to to think back to one of those four questions, so a book from outside the world of education, your biggest fear, the most important thing your parents taught you, if someone was to write a book about you at the end of your career, if you had to pick now one of those areas – and then leave all of us, myself included, with some last bits of wisdom and insight, what would it be? Well, uh, I guess it would be the, the fear question and the worry that um, the powers of darkness are going to win in the end. Uh, it's partly due to the political situation in the yeah. United States yeah. and the fact that our leaders are playing on what I see are some of our lesser emotions, our worries and our fears, rather than our strengths. And it has to do with something that's been uh, an issue for me. I've always been close to religion. I'm not a Bible-thumping kind of uh, religious person. But since I retired last year, I've been training to be a lay minister. Oh, nice. And so on Sundays, uh, I've passed enough of my coursework now that they can call me and I can be a a substitute minister. Oh, wow. (laughs) And um, again, it's not a Bible-thumping kind of ministry, but it's a ministry about hope and my belief that in the end, the power of love is going to win. I think that's... In my case, the Christian message, the power of love is going to win. You can get there through Islam. You can get there through uh, atheistic thinking. But in my case, uh, there's a religious tradition behind it that the power of love is going to win. Ultimately, even though day by day, it often looks like that's not the case. So that's the the issue that uh, is consuming me now. I watch too much politics on TV (laughs) for my own good, Uh, but I think I'm going to get more political. I I was involved in the Women's March in Washington. I carried a placard, and um, I'm going to be very politically active and more than I was when I was consumed with writing articles and getting ready for class. Which is, I think, again, going back to always having a purpose and, and you know, many people when they retire and they're at the twilight of their career, um, their purpose, uh, the door closes on their purpose when they complete their careers, right? And, and right. you know, purpose is everything. Purpose gives yep. us hope and and I guess our purpose has changed throughout our lives, so... It doesn't surprise me that you you had a life of purpose in the work that you do, and that will just continue and morph in new ways um, as you venture into another chapter in your life. Yeah, I I hope I can wake up every morning excited. Yeah, (laughs) that would be a nice uh, way to live the rest of my days. (laughs) Yeah, excellent. So, Scott, to finish off. I don't know if you're, I, I couldn't find you on Twitter, but are, do you have a Twitter handle or are you active? Uh... No, I'm not, unfortunately. Oh, okay. My wife is. Uh, uh, where can people find you? So uh, people listening to this, I know they can just Google your name, but um, where can they find some of your work? And if they want to read about you, is there any place particular that they could go? Wow. I, 
I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, they can look me up at, at Penn State. You know, my resume is listed, so they can Google Scott Kretschmar, Penn State University, and get to my homepage, and they can find some of my articles there. A lot of this stuff is so visible on uh, on Google now anyhow. Yeah. If uh, they Google my name, uh, a lot of my articles would pop up. But now that I'm retired, I have a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so RSK1 can be advertised at psu.edu. Okay. And I am in communication with a, quite a number of folks who want to pursue an idea that's related to something I've done, and I'm more than happy to communicate with them. Okay, excellent. And and one of my things in, in life is giving gratitude and being appreciative of the good things in our life. So I'm going to challenge my listeners out there who have, have followed your work to uh, send you a message of uh, gratitude for the work that you've done in, in kind of changing uh, the way physical education is, is viewed and um, ultimately the the trickle-down impact that you're having on, on students around the world through through your work. So I want to thank you deeply for, for being on the show and taking the time, Scott. Well, it's my pleasure and honor to be on your program, and good luck with your work, Andy. Okay, thank you. Uh, just stay on the line for a second. I'm just going to close off the show. Everybody, thank you for listening to my episode uh, with Scott Kretschmar. Uh, I appreciate your time, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Run Your Life podcast by Andy Bassett. To check out show notes, get some more information about Andy as well as his guests, head to our website, 21clradio.com.